Welcome to a brand new edition of Problematic Women. I'm Brittany Allen. And I'm Kristen Eichhammer. And back in studio with us today is Sarah Partial Perry, Senior Legal Fellow at the Heritage Foundation. Sarah, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Love doing the show. Well, if anyone is looking for a summer activity, specifically one that you could do with kids, although I'm going to clarify and say this could be done very much so just adults. If you're with family over July 4th, you need an activity, go to Home Depot, get yourself some cardboard boxes, some duct tape, some trash bags, and find a lake, a pond, pool, and do a boat building competition. <laughs> I did not know where that was going. And I thought, you're I telling like, people how to murder someone and get away like, with this the This is body. true crime by Virginia Allen. <laughs> Let me just lay it all out for you the guys. The perkiest right serial murderer you'll ever hear from. That should be a show. I'm surprised no one's made that a show yet. Oh, my gosh. That's creepy. <laughs> no, but so uh, I was helping out last Thursday and Friday. Um, I volunteered with my youth group at church, and we did. We had our retreat. And so this was something that we did in college. And so I did it with the youth, and they loved it. They built boats in 25 minutes two of these boats made it all the way across this little pond, which I was very impressed by. Wow. It, it's amazing what you can do with cardboard, duct tape, and trash bags. That's a, it's really truly. brilliant. That's, it sounds like a small feat of engineering that I would not be capable of. So, <laughs> Did they ride in these boats, though? I'm yes. trying to imagine this. Yeah, so there was one, one kid in each boat, uh, and I told them, like, it has to be an actual boat. It has to have four walls. You have to be able to sit in it. And they did. And they they sat in the actual boat. They sat in the actual boat and paddled that thing and two, across the pond. Two of how many made it? Out of four. Dang. So 50%. That's pretty good. Pretty good. <laughs> yeah. And the other one didn't sink. It just wasn't structured correctly. Uh. To they, they just made it a box. And it has to be able to cut through the water. Mm. So you have to have something somewhat pointy at the end. So those with the box, probably not engineers or haven't been inspired to be one yet. Exactly. <laughs> still still need a little bit of, of work on that front. I, I will say I think the groups that had Boy Scouts in them did the best so that makes sense <laughs> checks out shout out to all our boy scouts out there <laughs> so if you need a summer activity you're with the family over july 4th there you go now you have one that's great that's no, great I'm, I'm doing it i'll post a video <laughs> great perfect <laughs> get ready all right well we have a full show today lots of legal things to talk about uh, which is yes. good that we have sarah here it yep. is the season <laughs> all right Kristen, let us know what we have queued up up on today's Problematic Women, drag queens say they are coming for your children, but parents have something to say about that. And we will learn the decisions of two major Supreme Court cases that will be decided as soon as today. Plus, the real-life Barbie Dreamhouse is on Airbnb, and two people will be able to stay there in July. And as always, we'll be crowning our Problematic Woman of the Week. Each week on Problematic Women, we sort through the news to find those stories that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women, those whose views and opinions are often excluded by those on the so-called feminist left. If you are a problematic woman or just someone who supports strong, independent women, please consider supporting us by leaving a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and encouraging others to subscribe. It really does make a difference. All right, let's get to it. LGBTQ activists were in New York City on Friday for the drag parade. Uh, you may have heard of this by now as it's been floating around social media but what we saw is drag queens and LGBTQ activists shouting, we're here, we're queer, we're coming for your children. Some of the people shouting this were not fully clothed. 
So let's take a listen to what it sounded like. The drag march kicked off Pride Weekend in New York City. Of course, we're still in the month of June, so still Pride Month. Uh, I have a lot of thoughts on this. I've seen a lot of thoughts, of course, across social media, especially from parents uh, who tend to, oddly, just get a little defensive when when you say that you're coming for their children. Uh, now, some people say that this was sarcastic. It was in jest. It was meant to be funny. You know, they didn't really mean it. Somehow, I feel like, you know, parents don't see this as very funny. No, and I will say that um, today uh, Fox News carried a story that Carla Jay, who is the first female chair, although it depends on how you define female these days, mm. of the uh, Gay Liberation Front in New York, told NBC News that by saying we're coming for your children, it was actually an attempt to mock the language used by conservatives. Well, my response to that is if you were worried about the perception that we believe you're coming for our children, why even use the language at all? Mm -hmm. Now, there were also signs that said things like we recruit. I, I think the fact that we've seen this in public libraries, in public schools, in public accommodations where they know that there are going to be children present and there is an active attempt to shoehorn this liberal sexual orthodoxy into public spaces where children are present at younger and younger ages, I think the evidence speaks for itself, regardless of whether or not you meant it in jest or in truth. And I think what's scary is there were so many people at these pride parades, but there were also so many children. So yes. it was very disconcert. I, I just, I yeah. did not love it. it well, because you good. see the images of... Yeah. People wearing nothing, especially there was a lot of topless people, and you have kids running around, and you think in any other circumstance, situation, that's indecent exposure, that's a crime, you get arrested for that, right. but yet because it's a pride parade, all of a sudden it's okay? That's exactly it. It's, yeah. If it's you can't do it on the White House lawn, you should not be able to do it in a pride parade. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, right. End of story. <laughs> but exactly. um, what I when I saw that, too, I was like, is this not inciting violence? You know, because we, we love that terminology now. Right. Like right. inciting mm. violence. Um, I think, you know, there are plenty of parents out there that are repulsed by what they heard, by what they saw. Like we said, there was nudity. There was disgusting. We recruit signs. And sure, we can say it was lighthearted and fun, but I think that there is a line. And we've seen that a lot with the LGBTQ, whatever alphabetical letter you want to add to the end of that community. But it doesn't it, – there's a line. And I think we're starting to really, really edge – I mean, we've already passed it. And I think parents are so finally times. like, nope, we're reeling it back in. You're inciting violence. I'm over it now. Yeah. Well, my question is for the parents who bring their mm, minor true. children what to events doing? like this. That's exactly it. So we didn't just see fetishism glorified. Everything from, I guess there are Furbies is what they call oh, yeah. them, to people who were in drag. And then people simulating actual sex acts, <sighs> indecent uh, exposure, Older men twerking in their underwear in front of minor children. And I'm going, what at what point does a parent think 
this would be a good idea mm-hmm. to go to this parade for which there's an entire month dedicated to celebrating what your sexual orientation is. Mm -hmm. I don't walk around going, hey, I'm heterosexual. Where's Mm -hmm. my month? Let's get an entire pride month. (laughs) I don't understand how we've essentially, I mean, I do. This is the way sort of culture has evolved. And we know exactly that we're heading in the direction that we have been promised from a series of liberal politicians really over the past 50 years or so. But I think what we're seeing now in the culture is an opportunity for parents to do one of two things, to either stand up and take action by removing their children from situations like this, whether it's public classrooms, whether it's public libraries, whether it's the drag brunches, or to participate with their children. And the earlier we sexualize our children, the more damage we're doing. There cannot be anything good that comes of a situation like this. A grown man twerking in front of a minor child, exposing himself to a minor child, can result in no good whatsoever. I mean, mm-hmm. it's also a crime. Like, at the end of the day, we just exactly like, it. need it to... That That is what it is. It's not a joke anymore. To your point, the parents that brought their children there, a lot of questions for you guys. But you're totally right. I remember, you know, when I had to, you know, go to that awkward class where we learned about what happens when you get older. And I was a different person after going to that, you know? Like, I was, quote-unquote, mature. Maybe not super mature. But these kids are being forcibly exposed to this to your point and it's just stealing their childhood which is such a disservice to them like these kids should not be growing up with this disgusting behavior in front of them and at the end of the day i I just so many questions for the parents yeah and sarah you filmed a video for heritage which Mm -hmm. we shared on the problematic women uh, instagram account but where you compare this behavior to orgies yeah Yeah, Yeah, it truly is. You know, everything that we've seen, um, what history tells us about decadent, devolving societies where there's deprivation that's essentially glorified, whether it's the fall of Rome, whether it's Sodom and Gomorrah, whether it's Pompeii, we know that those particular civilizations that have glorified depraved interests, you can actually walk through Pompeii. And I've had the benefit of being able to do this. And there are actually images that are carved onto the side of buildings that illustrate Um, man-boy sexual relations. mm. So you could get a young male prostitute if you wanted it. And I'm thinking, and now the entire city is coated in soot and ash. Mm. I I don't think God is one to be messed with. And I do think we're going to come up to a line at which it's going to be no further than this. So it it truly is celebration of depraved interests. And it bothers me very much for where we're headed as a country. Yeah. No, history is pretty clear on that one. We've seen over and over when societies begin specifically to engage in exploitation, sexual exploitation of children, there's not a good ending for no, that society. That's exactly ever. It. <laughs> I'm trying to think of the nearest volcano and I think it's out in Washington. But honestly, that's where some of these disgusting pride parades happen. Like Well, I'll tell you, it you know, it's as long as we're speaking of the West Coast, the Seattle Pride Parade had some interesting footage as well. There was a street preacher who was actually surrounded by uh, rainbow mafia activists who were barking at him like dogs, and one of them actually shredded his Bible. Wow. Oh. Yeah, so we're we are truly talking sort of 
the deprivation I did not think I would see in my lifetime. So here I am um, of a certain age with three teenage children, and they've grown up understanding that things like this are perhaps a little out of the ordinary, but more increasingly so, normal. Mm -hmm. We have to stand up and say, it's not normal. And it's going to result in societal devolution. There's no place to go but down. I think we've done a good job, or an okay job, too. In recent months, we've seen Bud Light. Starbucks stopped using Pride, um, you know, decorations in a lot of their stores because of pushback from the Target Bud Light situations that we've seen. I think that there is this willingness from some Americans to start standing up. I... I hope that that continues because shredding someone's, you know, religious, <laughs> religious um, materials, that's disgusting. It's also intolerant, which, you know, the left claims to be. Um, oh, man, God, yeah. just pray. <laughs> it's so far. It's Twenty eight so billion dollars between uh, Kohl's, Target and Anheuser-Busch as of last week. And I think the number now is even more significant, but that's 28 billion with a B. So if we've learned anything, it's that all of us together acting on our convictions, not just talking about it, but acting, making distinct choices to protect our children, protect our consumer dollars, protect our public education spheres. um, It does make a difference. So I think we have to be bold. Yeah. 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 Well, we could keep going with this because it, it's critical to talk about what is happening to the next generation. And I mean, when we ask that question of you know, why are they targeting kids? Well, I mean, it's obvious. It was uh, Lenin who was you know, attributed saying, give me four years to teach the children and the seed I have sown will never be uprooted. Kids are, are uh, they're such beautiful little people and they can be molded and shaped. And those those are critical years. And everyone recognizes that for good or for evil. Yeah. So, um, so, so critical. But, Sarah, I'm I'm glad that you're here because we have quite a couple uh, big cases that we need to ask you about yep. and catch up on what is going on at the Supreme Court. This has been a <laughs> nail biter. But before we get to that, I want to tell you all about a super fun way that you can stay connected with Problematic Women throughout the week. If you don't know, Problematic Women is on Instagram and you can catch highlights of the show, reels, inspiring social graphics, and just stay informed on what we're covering here on Problematic Women when you follow the Instagram account. Just open your Instagram, search for Problematic Women, and look for that bright pink logo. We've got a hot lineup of Supreme Court decisions <laughs> coming out. waiting and waiting and waiting. I know. And I think what makes it even more us even more eager is the fact that a lot of it has to do with universities and colleges. Um, yeah, with us. Exactly. Yeah. One of the big questions that the bench is deciding on is whether any consideration of race in college admissions is an act of racial discrimination. Many of us have checked that box. I know we have to do it, you know, for job applications, but I distinctly remember when I was growing up checking the the box that designated that I was Caucasian. Um, mm-hmm. I remember even having a conversation with one of my fellow classmates, and she was younger at the time and didn't really get what she was saying, but she basically said, I'm Hispanic, and it's going to be a lot easier for me because I'm checking that box. And mm-hmm. I, I just, I only say that because it is so 
such a core part of our, our society now. Yeah. But um, so anywho, the, the court is expected to strike down the two conscious race conscious admissions program, one at Harvard and the other at University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Under current legal precedent, colleges and universities may consider individuals' race in making acceptance decisions. Sarah, I feel like your background is literally just perfect for this conversation. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The legal debate on this has been a long time coming. How did we get here, though? Well, so there was an opinion uh, about 22 years ago issued by Justice Sandra Day O'Connor called Grutter v. Bollinger. And in that decision, it was the decision of the Supreme Court that you could use race to achieve the educational outcome of diversity. Mm -hmm. In other words, only within sort of a limited amount, but only to achieve essentially a good educational mix so that everyone would benefit. But in that opinion... The court said, we anticipate that many years from now, we won't need to use race in admissions. That's one of those situations where the clock is beginning to run at this point. Mm -hmm. So this was a, a decision from 22 years ago. We're now, and she said, in the opinion... 25 years is kind of when we anticipate that society will be fully integrated and all of the vestiges of what we saw, the pushback was on Brown versus Board of Education. We will fully see members of every race integrated into every segment of society. Unfortunately, the longer you use race for one group of people, the more likely you are to discriminate against another group of people. Mm -hmm. So now we realize particularly at Harvard, because Harvard has a horrific record of discrimination. And in fact, back in the 20s, were caught red-handed, essentially, in an anti-Semitic admissions process, Mm. essentially excluding Jewish Americans from admission because they were sort of weighting the scales. They were higher performing. This wasn't giving them, they believed, an option to sort of get the sort of right mix that they wanted to. So um, now we're seeing two different challenges. So these are not consolidated cases. Sometimes the Supreme Court will take two nearly identical cases and consolidate them. Mm -hmm. The court has decided to keep these separate. I believe it's because Justice Katanji Brown Jackson mm. was on the board at Harvard, and so she has had to recuse herself okay. from opinion participation in that case. So the two different cases are, as you mentioned, Harvard and UNC. They're brought on different but very similar claims. One is for the 14th Amendment of the Constitution, which guarantees equal protection of the law to everyone. That's the Harvard case. And the other at UNC is Title VI of the Civil Rights Act. Now, Title VI and the 14th Amendment are very closely related. In fact, the drafters of Title VI said that they were relying on the promises of equal protection and due process in the 14th Amendment to draft this civil rights statute that could be plugged into all of these federally funded schools. So they're very similar claims, not identical, but very similar claims, um, and I think sort of the scuttlebutt, the sense that we're getting, particularly because this seems to be a court that is rightly in recognition of when they've been incorrect in the past or when they need to essentially say we're finished now with the utilization of this test. I give you 
Lemon v. Kurtzman in the Kennedy versus Bremerton case. That's the praying coach case. Justice Gorsuch said, we've long ago gotten rid of the lemon establishment test. Roe versus Wade, we know, went the way of the dodo after the Dobbs decision. So this this court is one, I believe, that is prepared to recognize, listen, now it's actually swung the, the balance, the pendulum in the other direction. Now we're actually discriminating against mm. other students. And here, Students for Fair Admission is a group of Asian Americans who have said, we've been disproportionately disadvantaged because you're weighting it in favor of one population over another. So I'm hopeful that under both claims, the 14th Amendment and Title VI, that they will finally say, Okay, no more race and admissions. It is blind admission process. Everyone gets the same chance. So how would that how would that work for applications? Do you think that schools would still ask or do you think that that would be taken off of application forms where schools would no longer would even be able to ask what your ethnicity, what your race is? Very likely they would not be able to ask. Okay. Now, there is some data collection that transpires through the Department of Education. We had to do an annual data assessment on the number of certain populations that were represented or individuals that were coming from particular backgrounds, just so that we would have a sense that everyone was getting the same aspect of equal education, as is sort of guaranteed by the Elementary and Secondary Education Act, which is one of the laws that we were enforcing. But for the most part, when you are applying as a student, you will most likely not be able to check that box in the future. The box won't even be there. There will be data collection through the school itself that goes directly to the Department of Education. But you will most likely, if this decision goes, if Grutter v. Bollinger goes, we will finally see blind applications. Now, I don't think in all fairness, I don't think this is ultimately going to go completely colorblind, which I would love, right? Mm -hmm. As a civil rights attorney and a constitutional scholar, I'd love to say, hey, it's ground zero. We are going to experience the dream of, you know, Brown versus Board of Education. I think a lot of these clever schools like Harvard, because they've done it in the past, are going to find backdoor ways to do it. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because that was actually going to be something else I asked you about. I was doing some digging and I guess um, California kind of already did this back in the 1990s with Section uh, 209, which basically said that you can't use um, for any university that's public or government funded, you can't use this racial conscious decision making with the admissions process. And the argument from those that are in support of it, um, I guess someone from the University of San Francisco was talking to uh, the Chronicle in San Fran and basically their argument is there has been such a huge drop in minorities at these schools. We're not going to get rid of this. So if the Common App drops these, you know, check boxes, we're just going to come out and ask, you know, students that are applying to tell us who they are and explicitly write their race. Right. And they said because San Francisco, it's yes, the University of San Francisco said. Um, and this is where I want your take because I'm getting livid by the hypocrisy. <laughs> um, they said that. Legally, if the government were to tell them that they cannot ask this in a, an essay format, that it would be violating their religious freedoms because they are a Jesuit university. And I just I need your take on this. <laughs> yeah. So I think that's um, 
absolute bunk. Now, <laughs> if if you are if you are attending a religious university, you have a right to get your students, particularly the applicants, to sign a faith statement, right, saying that you will adhere by the governing principles because religious universities are nonprofit universities, number one. Mm-hmm. And number two, they are almost exclusively uh, organized under a religious institution or according to the tenets of a particular belief. So as far as the Jesuit university is concerned, that religious religious liberty now, ironically, the left was saying for years it's the shield for bigotry. But now we're seeing the left come around and do an end run. I've seen arguments now for religious liberty in admissions based on race. I've also seen it in the right to get an abortion Mm -hmm. because certain um, minority Jewish populations claim that the predominant duty is to the pregnant mother and not to the unborn child. And so now we're seeing actually free exercise claims Mm. for the right to obtain an elective abortion. I, I think there will be no end to the well, creativity. It's hilarious because as a Catholic, I'm I'm just dumbfounded. And they point exclusively to, you know, Catholicism. You know, we believe in diversity and equity. But these are literally the same. This is the same organization when Riley Gaines walked up, you know, and was there. Mm-hmm. They harassed her and then they condoned the students for right. harassing her. Like, right. I, I just don't know where they get off. Yeah. Well, and it, it's fascinating to see that the last two cases that I would say the majority of Americans are watching. Of course, I know that you know, there's other cases still to come as we near the end of the Supreme Court term. But these last two ones that have been held among the last two really directly affect young people, affect students. And so, of course, we need to take a minute and talk about student loans. This is something... Um, This is a case that affects me personally as a student loan borrower, and I know it affects so many of you all listening. So Forbes reports that there are about 43 million student loan borrowers in America. And among all those borrowers, we have a total of $1.6 trillion in student loans. So um, I am just going to say up front, I'm, I'm no legal expert, but I think that the Supreme Court from from my research is probably going to strike down Biden's student loan repayment plan because it's not constitutional. But the only reason why it might move forward is if the Supreme Court determines that the case has no standing. And Sarah, here's where I'm going to ask you to explain further and go deeper. So there's actually there's two cases that were filed right. against loan forgiveness. The main one was brought by six states. Um, but there has to be harm or or threat um, in a case in order for there to be standing. Those suing have to say this situation harms us directly or will harm us with X, Y, or Z. So there has to be proof of harm in order for the case to have standing in the Supreme Court to weigh in. So I think that is really the big question because from, from all of the legal experts I've heard from, it's pretty apparent that uh, President Joe Biden doesn't have the authority through executive action to forgive millions of dollars in right. student loan debt. So there are two cases, as you mentioned. One is Biden versus Nebraska. That's the coalition of states who've brought the suit against the Department of Education. And mm-hmm. the other one is uh, Department of Education versus Brown. Now, Biden versus Nebraska, there is, I think, a stronger standing argument. These are the six states who have said essentially under the HEROES Act. And the HEROES Act is is precisely that piece of um, federal law that we're questioning the authority for. 
does the HEROES Act, which was passed after September 11th, essentially giving the Department of Education pretty unilateral power to respond to a national emergency by waiving or modifying existing regulatory provisions. The thinking is when you have a situation like September 11th, we want to make sure that our frontline responders and our doctors and our nurses don't have to worry about repaying their student loans when they are responding for the good of the nation. But of course, because they love to do it, this administration has said, well, the HEROES Act gives us authority to be able to waive unilaterally $20,000 during the COVID pandemic. The second one is just to private borrowers. Now, this one, I think, is going to be a little more problematic because Mm. there are two individuals. One is not eligible for any relief under the plan because she doesn't have any federal student loans. That's a problem. The other one cannot get the full $20,000 in relief because um, there are differences in the amount borrowed. Um, So they're questioning, again, just like the states, Does the HEROES Act give you authority to waive $20,000? The two individuals, that to me, I think is a little more problematic. Mm -hmm. That um, from the outset, the standing question there has been a very tricky one. One's not eligible for the loans and one's not eligible for the first Uh, for the entire amount of the loan forgiveness. So the states, I think, have a stronger argument. And here's why. Because the states have proportionately the largest amount of student borrowers in the country. And so they're saying your ability to unilaterally forgive $20,000 impacts our economy Mm -hmm. as well. We're suffering a direct injury. And the Constitution's very clear about having a justiciable injury. In other words, you have to be able to say, okay, here is the concrete injury that's capable of being fixed by a court. Mm -hmm. And so I think the standing argument there is a much stronger one. I'm pretty certain. Uh, And two of my colleagues in the Legal Center have written extensively on this. Um, I'm pretty certain that the HEROES Act will not provide the authority that the administration wants. And remember, this administration has issued a bunch of different directives. Remember the CDC eviction moratorium. They struck it down. Remember the EPA Clean Air Act. They struck it down. The OSHA federal vaccine mandate. They struck it down. So this administration loves to take something it thinks looks like authority. Mm -hmm. And the Supreme Court goes, no, never in a million years (laughs) was that that. ever. You can't do that. That was never anticipated by the drafters of the statute. So, And we're so close to the passage of the HEROES Act. The congressional record is very clear. This was an attack on American soil. Mm -hmm. Those were, and the congressional record reflects it, those were precisely the types of national emergencies that it was enacted to protect against. Wow, wow. Okay, so I know today we, we're, getting, um, we're getting decisions from the court today, and then on, is Friday the last day for well, sure? Well, we don't yet we don't know, know because okay. they have announced for today, but there's no word yet on a Friday. <laughs> um, and, of course, we're going into a holiday weekend. And if you yeah. remember, Dobbs was the last decision to drop at the Supreme Court's uh, culmination of the term last year. I would love to say we're going to see all five of these 
today. We're going to get them all sort of in a bundle. Mm -hmm. We can respond and then everyone can go happily into the weekend Mm -hmm. because there are a number of other issues, very um, highly controversial. Mm -hmm. The right, for example, of religious website designer in Colorado. Yep. The pre-enforcement challenge to the Colorado Anti-Discrimination Act. Do I have to create wedding websites for LGBTQ uh, couples. Yep. That's a free speech claim, not a free uh, exercise claim. Big news. Same statute under which Jack Phillips, the cake baker, was charged. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're also looking at Groff versus DeJoy. To what extent does an employer have to accommodate a religious employee if, for example, they say, I keep the Sabbath holy, I can't work on Sundays? Mm-hmm. Is it a little bit of harm to the employer or is it substantial harm to the employer? Um, we're also waiting on a very, for purposes of this podcast, kind of a boring case on the Lanham (laughs) Act, trademark infringement. Can you infringe on a trademark overseas? And can you bring a claim based on violation of the Lanham Act, which governs governs trademark uh, infringement? Can you do that overseas as opposed to actually within the United States itself? Um, so we've got we've got a couple of hot button issues. We've got two student loan cases. We've got two student admissions and race preferences cases. We've got religious liberty, free speech, and then a little bit of trademark down there. So mm, just a little bit of everything. <laughs> a little, little bit of everything. A really, little bit of everything for you got sure. It. Well, we're going to be following this closely. It's going to be fascinating to see how these things pan out because they really do affect so many so many Americans, but specifically yeah. so many young people. And well, and speaking speaking of things to watch, mm-hmm. Kristen and I have been joking a little bit about going to see well, joking but also serious about yeah. going to see the Barbie movie on July twenty first yes. when it comes out. So when that happens, we'll talk about it on the show. But in the meantime, we were both very fascinated yes. to see that there is actually a real Barbie dream house that exists in Malibu. Yeah, guys, when we found this, I'm not gonna lie, I was like. Going back to the duct tape and cardboard, like someone is behind this and they are going to murder me. But it's actually a really brilliant um, marketing plan uh, Ryan Gosling came up with, I think, or he's at least taking credit for at this point, where they're allowing people to come visit the Barbie dream house in Malibu. Um, he's calling it Ken's dream house um, for those that are interested in staying. And you can sign up. There's no price yet. So we're kind of convinced it's a giveaway. Um, I think, yeah, because they yeah. said it wasn't a competition, but I don't think ultimately, I, I think it's all for marketing. So yeah. I don't actually know that you have to pay for it. But. Right. It doesn't look like you have to on Airbnb. But we can definitely uh, include the the site in our our podcast links uh, this week, and you can go check it out because it is hilarious. It literally just looks like screenshots from the movie, but it is really Barbie's dream house, and it is complete with a grill and plastic, you know, little chicken legs and things on it, a pool, a slide. Uh, it looks so fun. I'm just like, does anything in the house actually work? I know. I don't. That think was my question. I took yeah. a look at it, and I, you know, I don't know if you guys are. Old enough to have played with Barbie. Oh, hundred percent. Okay, oh, okay. Yeah. So Barbie, I mean, she's she's sort of an American institution. She I is. was obsessed Same. with Barbie. I had the dream house. Then I bought the dream house for my daughter when oh, she was little, and it, it came with everything from you know hair sized toothbrushes oh. to tiny little teacups. Okay, and I so loved cute. it. But two hundred pieces 
kill me. Okay, <laughs> not <laughs> something I would recommend um, just based on the the quantity of uh-huh. material in there. Yep. But I loved Barbie. Right? She was like an American icon. So of course I'm going to see the movie. Oh as yeah, hundred well. percent. But fair warning, I have heard there is a lot of virtue signaling. Which I mean, it's Hollywood. Surprise, surprise. And it's Natal. Surprise, surprise. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> and so just just be prepared. We're going in with ex. I mean, I'm going in with expectations low. Um, if you've seen some of the um, the commercials and the, you know, promo videos, um, I mean, it starts with little girls, you know, sla- banging with uh, with babies, like their baby dolls they have. Oh. And they're like, for years, dolls were around because little girls were around. But then came a new item. And it like shows Margot Robbie, <laughs> like as Barbie, the original Barbie. And then these girls start smashing babies. And I'm like, maybe I'm a little triggered. But come on guys like these are babies it was a that was a very strange like teaser trailer that they put out first it was very strange yeah i was like what is going on but a few other themes that people have pointed out is they make cops the bad guys is that intentional maybe it's not i don't know um they make guys the bad guys i mean there's a lot of man haters in hollywood i don't know so maybe expectations a little low but you know i'm gonna go see anything that reminds me of my childhood yeah yeah childhood. well and um um, you know, Kristen, I, I think we need to try and okay. when, whenever that dream house becomes available, I'm, I'm trusting you to get our names in there. Hey man, I have the website. <laughs> we could record problematic women from the Barbie dream house. Wow. That, would that, be, that would be amazing. Yeah, that would be incredible. And then Hollywood <laughs> would lose their mind. Like, why are these conservative women <laughs> recording a podcast? Well, listen, you know, pink is the color of problematic women. It is. So why, why wouldn't it be a perfect sort of dual marketing ploy, quite frankly? It was frankly? hilarious, too, because there was an article on when they were producing this movie. The United States ran out of the color pink. I'm not sure if that's real. I didn't fact check it, but I wouldn't be surprised. How do you run out of the color paint? I don't. Honestly, I don't know. But if someone's going to do it, it's going to be the Barbie movie. Yeah. (laughs) Well, Sarah, thank you so much for joining us today. It is always a pleasure having you on. Thanks for having me, you guys. We'll see you in Malibu at the Barbie Dream Oh, definitely. All right. Well, stay tuned because up next we crown our Problematic Woman of the Week. We get it. With big media bias, it's hard to find accurate, honest news. That's why we've put together the Morning Bell Newsletter, a compilation of the top stories and conservative commentary. To subscribe, just head to dailysignal.com slash morningbell subscription or visit dailysignal.com and click on the connect button at the top of the page. Now, it is that time, once again, my favorite time of the week. Time to crown our problematic woman of the week. And the crown goes to Martha Washington. Woo! Martha Washington was, of course, our first lady. Virginia and I got to go to her house this summer for the Heritage 50th. We did. <laughs> she has a lovely home, Mount Vernon. Beautiful. Just beautiful. beautiful. <laughs> it's a classic field trip spot. I feel like so every child in Northern Virginia, Maryland at some point goes to Mount Vernon to see. I mean, people, I guess, usually refer to it as George Washington's house. But Martha took care of that house. She so. was there longer, too, I think. She was. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it, so I, in in light of the fact that Tuesday, it is Tuesday, yeah, Tuesday is July 4th, celebrating our independence, I was like, you know what? Uh, we should do a little research on Martha yeah. Washington and learn a little bit more about her. First off, she had a hard life. Mm. I was fascinated to learn. So she was actually married before she married George Washington, 
she married a, a quite a wealthy man. Um, they had four children together. Um, of course, she outlives. His name um, was Daniel Park Curtis. She outlives him. I think they were married for about seven years. Um, but she also outlives all four of her children. I think two died Ooh. when they were five years old. One died as a teenager and one died in their 20s. Oh, like, geez. my gosh, life was hard. That's really hard. I was horrible. looking at these facts on, on Mount Vernon's website. I think they said only only uh, maybe 60% of kids like lived like into their teens. Like, it was just such a high percentage with illness and sickness. So many people didn't make it like gosh so martha washington she was a hardy lady uh, not only did she overcome a lot of tragedy and hardship in her life i was fascinated that uh, during the revolutionary war she would during the winters she would travel to the encampments where the soldiers were staying specifically her husband george washington and she mm-hmm. would stay with them during the winter i think that's the coolest thing that is so cool and if you think about it like wartime back then was very different than wartime right now. Like, I just can't imagine the things that she saw while visiting these soldiers. Mm -hmm. And I bet it uplifted them so much to have fresh face woman. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But also, you know, George Washington's wife of all people. Like, she could have stayed home and manned the fort. You know, Mount Vernon's pretty big. Yeah, it's pretty Um, nice. Lots of responsibilities. Great place to hang out. Yeah, lots of things to do. But instead, she, you know, took the time. I'm not surprised, though, uh, that she went and visited these soldiers because they were literally fighting against you know, the king of England for freedom. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I was fascinated too, to learn that. So most women in the 1700s couldn't actually read and write, but she could, she had learned how to read and write. Um, she was a very well educated woman, which makes sense why George Washington was very attracted to her. He was a very intelligent man. Mm. And, um, it sounds like they were quite equals on the intellectual front. So this July 4th, Martha Washington, we celebrate you. We celebrate you For because being literally like the first, the yeah. the actual OG problematic woman, <laughs> the OG problematic woman, and first first lady, and first first That's lady. That's quite the title. That is quite the title. Yeah, pretty incredible. Well, a quick announcement before we go today: we are not going to have a normal show next week in light of it being the week of July Fourth, and so many of us all are all over. I'm going to be up in Boston seeing my family, and um, I know so many of you will be with family, but Lauren. Lauren's mom is going to be in town, and so providing that Lauren can still convince her mom to do this, Lauren is going to come on with her mom for just a quick show. They're going to have a fun conversation, and so we're really excited to share that with you. I think it's going to be special and super sweet and just love the love the mother-daughter dynamic that Lauren and her mom have. Oh, I know she's told so epic. many stories about her mom on this show, yeah. so <laughs> that should be a fun time. So look out for that next Thursday morning. But with that, that's going to do it for today's episode. Conservatives need your support in the podcast world, and we would greatly appreciate a five-star review on Spotify, CastBox, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does make a difference. We hope you all have a wonderful weekend. Enjoy July 4th. Eat some hot dogs. Yeah, some firecracker popsicles. Firecracker popsicles. Make a boat out of cardboard. If you do, you should totally send it to us. Please do. Take a picture and tag Promo Overman on Instagram. We'd love to see it. All right. Happy Independence Day, y'all. Problematic Women is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is a product of The Daily Signal produced by Lauren Evans and Virginia Allen. 
and be sure to follow Problematic Women on Instagram. We produce Problematic Women in remembrance of our dear friend and former co-host, Bree Payton.